What we're going to do tonight, God willing, is get started on Colossians. And I can't imagine Colossians taking more than two sessions, but it might. It'll take however long it takes. So the book, at least according to the commentary I read, written sometime around 62 AD, while Paul was in prison, imprisonment that we read about in the book of Acts. As you read it, it becomes very obvious that Paul's never been to Colossae. Having heard of something going on, he is writing them, but is not writing them as someone who is intimately familiar with a particular church. So whereas other pastoral letters spend a great deal of time dealing with what I would call personnel problems, things like not getting along at the Lord's Supper, you know, some people getting drunk, other people not having anything to eat, people sleeping with the wrong people, you know, that kind of thing. Not too much of that in here. What this one seems to be is talking about some kind of a heresy. The commentary I read, which is the Dallas Theological Commentary, which is the one that comes with my Bible program, suggests that it's talking about a Jewish heresy. I don't agree. I don't think it is at all. And when we get to where he's talking about that, I'll explain why I think that. The other thing about Paul's pastoral letters is there are seven of them. There's more than seven, but Thessalonica and Corinth and so forth have two apiece. So there's seven addressees, if you will, in his pastoral letters. Similarly, there are seven kingdom parables in the book of Matthew, and there are seven letters to seven churches in the book of Revelation. What I am of the opinion is that Colossae probably corresponds to Laodicea, and one of the reasons I think that is that they get told to send it on to Laodicea. When you get this letter, make sure Laodicea gets a copy. So that's sort of a clue, I think. So anyway, let's go ahead and start the book of Colossians, and then we'll bounce back and forth as appropriate and necessary either to Revelation 3 or Matthew 13. So, Colossians 1. Paul, an apostle of Yeshua Messiah, by the will of God and Timothy our brother, to the saints and faithful brothers in Christ in Colossae, grace to you and peace from God our Father. We always thank God, the Father of our Lord Yeshua Messiah, when we pray for you. Since we heard of your faith in Messiah Yeshua and of the love you have for all the saints because of the hope laid up for you in heaven, of this you have heard before in the word of truth, the gospel, which has come to you as indeed in the whole world it is bearing fruit and growing, as it also does among you since the day you heard it and understood the grace of God and truth. Just as you learned it from Ephraphus, our beloved fellow servant, he is a faithful minister of Messiah on your behalf and has made known to us your love in the Spirit. So Ephraphus, whoever he is, there may be a cross-reference on him. I didn't check, quite frankly. He also shows up in Philemon. And by the way, one of the people that will get mentioned in this book is Onesimus, who is the slave that belongs to Philemon, who is the subject of the book of Philemon. So the idea of Epaphras having been the one who started the church in Colossae. 
again, this is sort of a standard Pauline greeting. One of the things that has plagued the church ever since Yeshua ascended is who he is. And there are a number of different ideas about that. Interestingly, the Jews don't have a problem with it. He's a good Jewish boy that went wrong. But when the gospel hits the Greek culture, what happens is the Greeks, God bless them, and I'm using Greek in the sense of Greeks, Romans, as contradistinction to Jerusalem. They tend to be analytical. And so what they do is they dig into stuff and they try and break it apart very much in a scientific way. And what they're trying to do is figure out who this is. And there have been wars fought over opinions of who he is. So one opinion of who he is is that he's a, an angel, for lack of a better word, but basically a spiritual being that put on a man suit. And the fact that he looked like a man and so forth was basically just an illusion. I don't happen to believe that, by the way. It's just one of the opinions out there. Another opinion is that he's just a man that God zapped with the Holy Spirit and gave him all this power and wisdom and so forth, much like he gave Solomon wisdom, and he's just a man. And there are variations on this, as many as there are denominations in the church. And then the third option, which I hold, is that he was fully human and he is fully God. And that's sort of, if you will, the Trinitarian view, and how God managed that, I have no idea. Figuring out the mechanics of that is way beyond my pay grade. I just don't know how he did it, but that's what I think is the case. So one of the things that is going to be talked about here in this letter is who he is. Or what he is, that may be the wrong way to say it, but the idea of what happened. And these opinions of who and what he was began to form and proliferate very early. This didn't take 20 minutes after the resurrection before people started speculating. And they say, especially as you have the collision between a Hebrew God, a Hebrew mindset, and the Hebrew people, and the Hebrew scriptures, and the Greek way of looking at stuff. The people in the Greek mindset don't grow up with this. They don't have that mindset, and they come at it from a purely analytical point of view. And that's why you get all of the stuff that's written in theology books that isn't in the Bible. In the Hebrew scriptures, being raised from the dead, it's a big deal, but it's not uncommon. Lots and lots of people have been raised from the dead. The problem that makes him different from everybody else is he is raised in accordance with the scriptures, and he then walks around and preaches, and he doesn't die again. So, for example, the Shunammite's son, as far as we know, that guy, when he was raised by Elijah, at some point in the future, died again. He is not still walking around, immortal. Or if he is, he's hiding really well. So Yeshua is fundamentally different in that respect than anybody else. But the idea from the Jews' point of view that somebody be raised from the dead is not remarkable. I mean, it is remarkable. It's rare. You understand what I'm saying? But it's not 
this is impossible. That isn't the Hebrew outlook. Yeah, it's happened before. And the fact that it happened with this guy sounds good. Nothing we can't get our heads around. Whereas when you talk to a Greek or Greek mindset person, it's completely different understanding. So what's going to happen next year is we're going to talk about it as we get past the intro to the letter, if you will. So we're down on verse 9. And so, from the day we heard, we have not ceased to pray for you, asking that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding, so as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him, bearing fruit in every good work, and increasing in the knowledge of God. May you be strengthened with all power according to his glorious might, for all endurance and patience with joy, giving thanks to the Father, who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved Son, in whom we have redemption and forgiveness of sin. So the first theological chunk, if you will, and he talks about it as well in Ephesians 1, He also talks about it at the end of Romans. We just finished Romans. And the idea that one of the things that you have as someone who is a believer and has joined the kingdom of God is you have the assurance of an inheritance. And in the Jewish way of saying it, you have a place in the world to come. So the idea is after the resurrection, you will have a place there, which is to say in the Baptist sense, you make it past the lake of fire and go into the new heaven and the new earth. And say Baptist sense, I'm not being snarky. I'm just, that's their perspective on it. And it's not incorrect, but the way the Hebrews would think of it is you're sleeping with your fathers until the time of resurrection. And then there is a judgment and then those who are worthy are in the world to come. And what Paul is saying here to these folks as members of the kingdom of God, verse 12 again, giving thanks to the Father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. So the idea is you've been delivered from the kingdom of darkness or the kingdom of death, and you have been guaranteed an inheritance. And the thing about an inheritance is somebody's got to die. So the idea here is you are going to go through your normal human life and at some point you will pass through normal human death, but that's okay. Because when you're raised from the dead, as everyone will be, you have an assurance that you have an inheritance on the far side. The idea of going to heaven is not biblical, it's Greek. And the idea of ethereal spirits being separated from the body and released to go off and do something is not biblical, it's Greek. Once you have changed kingdoms, if you will, gone out of the kingdom of this world, the kingdom of darkness, whatever you want to call it, and you have transitioned into the kingdom of light, you have the inheritance. But it's something you don't take possession of until you are raised from the dead. The same concept in Ephesians 1, Paul says that the Holy Spirit is your marker or your claim check or your guarantee 
that you, in fact, do have an inheritance coming. That's one of the functions of the Holy Spirit, to assure you that the inheritance is waiting for you. He also says it in Romans. He says it several places. Anyway, verse 13 again. He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved Son, which is what I just said, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. And notice there are two things there. One is redemption, and the other one is the forgiveness of sins. And I will suggest that redemption, the example that I use, or I've heard other preachers use, and it's kind of a good one, is when you take your clothes into the dry cleaner, they give you a claim check. And at some time in the future, you go back in and you redeem your clothes, which means you pick them up. So until you actually redeem them, they are in the custody of the dry cleaner. So having redemption, which means that we are redeemed from the kingdom of darkness. In other words, God has taken us out of that kingdom. And, oh, by the way, he's also forgiven us of sin. What I was just thinking of was Yom Kippur. You read the instructions for Yom Kippur. There's this whole sequence of stuff you got to do. You got to change clothes. You got to go behind the veil. You got to take blood one time, blood another time. You got to do all of this stuff. And at the end of the whole thing, oh, by the way, I'll forgive your sins. And the way I see it, which is the way the rabbis see it, and I like it very much, is being in the presence of God is forgiveness of sins because you can't be in the presence of God without them being forgiven. So all of this stuff that you have to do to get into the presence of God, when you finally are in the presence of God, your sins are forgiven. So the idea that you have been redeemed, taken out of the kingdom of darkness and brought into his son's kingdom, you are now in his presence, and oh, by the way, your sins are forgiven. you got two things there, obviously redemption, which means he's taken you out of the kingdom of darkness, he's redeemed you, and then forgiveness of sins. Onward to verse 15, I believe. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. He is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God is pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. A bunch of stuff in there. This is Genesis 1 speak. In the beginning, and then you have the Spirit of God hovering over the waters, and then you have the Word of God, God said. So for those of you who are Trinitarians, you have all three members of the Godhead in Genesis 1. You have the will of the Father, you have the power of the Spirit, and you have the voice of the Son. So what Paul is saying here when he says he's the image of the invisible God, and by him all things were created in heaven on earth, visible, invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. 
So what he's doing there is he is taking you back to Genesis 1. And he's saying this man, Yeshua, is the one who made it all. And what that says to me, being Trinitarian, is he is God. And created through him, and I am going to suggest in my Greek mindset here, you had the three members of the Godhead. You had the will of the Father, you had the power of the Spirit, and you had the voice of the Son. So all things were created through him. Does anybody have a different translation there? I've got English Standard. By him for King Jimmy. In him were created, and you have the Catholic translation? The reason I ask that is because by and through are obviously two different words. You can tell they're spelled differently, and they have slightly different meanings. If it's all created by him, he is the one who did it. If it's all created through him, he is the agent by which it was created, but he becomes, if you will, a transitive thing. It's created through him. In other words, he becomes an essential vehicle for the creation, but somebody else desired that it happen. And going back to my thing on Genesis 1, you have what I call the will of God. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, right? So you have the will of God the Father, you have the power of the Holy Spirit, and you have the voice of the Son. And in that model, through becomes the proper verb. And don't get me wrong, I'm speculating here. This is not doctrine. Everybody understand that. How God did it is above my pay grade. I'm simply reading the words and trying to think it through, much like any good Greek. My translation, English Standard. All things were created through him and for him. Now, through and for are two different things. So the idea then, going back to my little model of what happened in creation, you have the will of the Father, the power of the Spirit, and the voice or the agency of the Son. And so what the Father is doing is creating this through his Son for his Son. In other words, this is where he is going to be king. So this whole thing is created through him. In other words, he's the voice. But it's also created for him because it is going to be his kingdom. That precise thing is why I've been niggling around with this for five minutes, messing with the verbs and so forth. Exactly that. God talks of his inheritance. So he says Israel is his inheritance. So the idea of this being God's inheritance or Christ's inheritance is perfectly biblical. Now, I don't know if it's inheritance in the sense that we would understand it in human terms, but that's the word the scriptures use. So the reason I've been sort of spinning around in circles in this one little verse is Paul is saying at least as I read it, and again, this is not doctrine, this is not saith anybody except me. God is a person in three parts. You have God the Father, you have God the Son, you have God the Spirit. And the way he created everything back in Genesis 1 is the will of the Father. In other words, the Father decided to do it. The power he used was the Holy Spirit, and the agency he used was the voice of his Son. 
And he did it for his son because that was going to be his kingdom. And understand, remember I said to begin with, when a Hebrew God with the Hebrew scriptures collides with the Greek mindset, the engineering mindset, you get all of this stuff. Because, oh, wow, what's that mean? And so what you now have seen in five or ten minutes is the story of a thousand heresies in the church because people go off in all directions. I hope I have not done that, by the way. I certainly didn't try to. But you see the process. Take a step back from all of this. Understand that what we have is a book which is what God wants us to know about himself. There is no way that a book is going to be able to encompass God. There's no way we're going to be able to encompass God. So as I'm messing around here with grammar and engineering thought and all that kind of stuff, it has no effect on what God does. God's not going to be checking with me. All I'm trying to do is understand it to the extent that that's useful. Let's go on. So all things were created through him and for him, and he is before all things, which is to say he is before the creation. He did not come into existence when he was born in Bethlehem. Before Abraham was I in, John chapter 8. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. Again, one of the common beliefs, and I think it's very reasonable, doesn't mean it's right, it's just reasonable, is that if God turned his attention somewhere else, all of this would cease to exist. I think that's a reasonable belief. Don't know if it's true or not. Verse 18. He is the head of the body, the church. Okay, straightforward. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. So again, the idea of he is the firstborn from the dead, what that contrasts with is the firstborn of all humanity, which is Adam. So Romans talks about Adam being the firstborn, if you will, and because Adam sinned, what he did is he made all of his children mortal. That's Romans 5 and 6. So the idea that when he sinned, he became mortal, and hence all of his children were mortal, and they would all die even if they didn't commit the same sin he did. Being mortal became just part of the deal once he fell. So Yeshua is the firstborn from the dead, which is to say he is first one raised from the dead and he is the first of many. So he in that sense becomes, if you will, a second Adam and those who are in his kingdom will be also born from the dead, raised from the dead, if you will, and become partakers in the inheritance. 19. For in him all the fullness of God is pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. One of the things about God's universe is everything balances. If you are an engineer like I am, push here, that means that there's got to be an equal and opposite force, or there has to be a momentum vector generated. Everything has to balance. It's just the way it is. And it is the same in God's moral economy. So if you sin, there has to be a payment. 
for that sin. It has to balance. Now, when I push, there's an instant counterforce or momentum vector generated immediately. With sin, there's a delay, a time lag, but it always gets paid. And so what Yeshua does by the shedding of his blood is he puts his blood on the scale opposite to your sins. So everything balances and you can now be forgiven because your sins have been paid for. And that's what Paul is saying is that he can reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. And that's what the blood does, is it becomes, if you will, the counterweight to the sins that you have committed. 21. And you, who once were alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death, in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. If indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard, which has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven, and of which I, Paul, became a minister. Verses 15 through 20, he is talking about who Messiah is, and he's talking about what his death accomplished. In 21 through 23, what he's talking about is what that means to Gentiles. And at the end of Romans, we talked about it, and we've talked about it when we do Ephesians, we've talked about it when we do Corinthians. The mystery that if the principalities and power that had dominion over the earth had understood that the resurrection of Yeshua was going to result in the ability of the Gentiles to become fellow heirs with the Jews, they never would have done it. That's 1 Corinthians 2. And the fact of the matter was, it was a mystery. It was hidden. It was not something that was predicted in Scripture. So what Paul is saying here is you, Gentiles, used to be alienated. You used to have no hope. You used to be out of the kingdom of God. You used to just sort of be hanging out there on your own. And what has now happened because of his resurrection is you can now become members of the kingdom of God and you are reconciled in his body in order to present you, the Gentiles, the Colossians, holy and blameless and above reproach before him. And so what he's saying there is Yeshua's blood cancels your sins as well and you now have the ability to become fellow heirs with Yeshua and fellow heirs in the kingdom of God. If indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard, which has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven. I see that as in Revelation, I don't remember what the chapter, where you have the angel that flies over the earth and proclaims the gospel to everything. Somewhere on Revelation 8, I think. Anyway, you've got an angel that flies over the whole earth and proclaims the gospel. And one of the things that Christian radio, Bible producers, all those kinds of things say is we need to get the gospel to the whole world so that then the end will come. And God bless them. I am not in any way saying anything against them. 
But God's not going to leave it up to them. When the time comes, God is going to send a strong angel and he's going to go over the entire earth and he's going to make the announcement so there's no possibility that anybody is going to be able to say, I never heard it. So in that vein, the gospel that you heard, which has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven, sounds to be very much like that kind of a thing, if you will. The other place you can go is Romans, I think where it says the creation groans, waiting. So the idea that not only are people under bondage, but the whole creation is out of whack because he's not on the throne here yet. That would be what I would do with that. The other thing is, as I have said to you all hundreds and hundreds of times, I am not a Calvinist. And so this verse 22 and 23 He is now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him, comma, if indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard. If you happen to be of the Calvinist persuasion, God bless you, which is God makes you an offer you can't refuse, and once you're in, you can't get out. I don't believe that's correct. You have a choice as to whether or not you come into the kingdom, and you also have a choice as to whether you stay in the kingdom. And the other part of that is it seems to be God's policy that once you do come in, he works really hard to make sure you stay. So I'm not suggesting that, uh, in or out, what the heck, I'll look down periodically and see what we got, and some of them move in, some of them move out, it doesn't matter. No, that's not what I'm saying. What I'm saying is, if you decide to leave, you can, just like you could decide to come in. But as I say, it's his policy to make that leaving as unattractive as possible. What Paul seems to be saying here is, you will be presented holy and blameless and above reproach, provided you continue in the faith, and steadfast and not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard. So, 24. Now I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake, and in my flesh I am filling up what is lacking in Christ's affliction for the sake of his body, that is, the church, of which I became a minister according to the stewardship from God that has been given to me for you to make the word of God fully known, the mystery hidden for ages and generations, but now revealed to his saints. That's all one sentence, at least in my translation. I have no idea what it means filling up what is lacking in Christ's affliction. I will speculate, but it's nothing but speculation. And that speculation is that that people have to continue to want to do whatever is necessary in order for the gospel to advance. So Yeshua suffered in the flesh once. And that suffering in the flesh bought everybody forgiveness of sins, the whole earth. But now everybody doesn't buy it. And so Paul's affliction may be the vehicle which causes others to buy it that don't buy it simply because of a crucifixion 2,000 years ago. I have no idea if that's correct, but that's all I can come up with. So the comment was that 
the filling up what is lacking in Messiah's affliction was that he was tempted, just like we are, and the temptation was real, just like our temptation is real. He never gave in, we do. So he never experienced the need to repent, and he never experienced the need to ask for forgiveness for his sin because he never sinned. So uh, 24 and a half. For the sake of his body, that is the church, of which I became a minister according to the stewardship from God that was given to me for you, to make the word of God fully known, the mystery hidden for ages and generation, but now revealed to his saints. And again, he's talked about the mystery in Ephesians. He's talked about the mystery in Corinthians. He's talked about the mystery in Romans. And in all cases, the mystery is that the Gentiles are able to come into the kingdom of God. 27. To them, God chose to make known how great among the Gentiles are the riches of the glory of this mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. And he says it differently in Corinthians. He says it differently in Ephesians. But the net of it is Gentiles get to come in. 28. Him we proclaim warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Messiah. For this I toil, struggling with all his energy that he powerfully works within me. So going back to the idea of if you continue, what he's saying is I am working to make sure that those who have the ability to come into the kingdom of God do so. That's what he's working to accomplish. Just because everybody now has the ability to come into the kingdom of God, that doesn't mean that everybody will. And so his job is to work diligently and do whatever is necessary so as many people come in as he can reach. For this I toil, I I toil, I work, I work hard, struggling with all his energy that he powerfully works within me. The idea is that he gives Paul energy and inspiration to carry out the work, but the work is Paul's. He's working hard using the vehicle of God's energy in order to bring as many heathens into the kingdom as he can.